Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I have a hard time with my identification. I have no birth certificate. I can't get married. Can't get a marriage license. I can't leave the country. I can't go to college. That was Jackie Taylor talking about the very real adult consequences of being put into the Federal Witness Protection Program as a seven-year-old girl. Jackie's father was Clarence Crouch, a convicted killer and infamous member of the Hells Angels who turned and became a government informant. Jackie and her family have now been in witness protection for nearly 40 years But in 2009, she had had enough. She created a hit podcast about her life called Relative Unknown in hopes of inspiring fundamental change to the witness protection program. I don't want to get famous. I just want to live in Billings, Montana anonymously and lead my own life here. I just want to make some changes so that we can take care of these people that have nobody else to look out for them. Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. Hello and welcome to our brand new season of All the Wiser. I hope you have been enjoying your summer. I know I have. I've been to North Carolina and Idaho where I went cliff jumping with my 14-year-old son. It wasn't pretty, but it happened and it's documented and it will not be on Instagram. I've also been incredibly B-U-S-Y because I won't say the word, creating something for you. And the fun part is I'm doing it with my childhood best friend and positive psychology practitioner, Christy Peterson. In many a caffeine-fueled meetings, we have been building a course designed for you. What I learned in season one and with the first 50 episodes, which is hysterical (laughs) that that's considered a season, but what I learned from our guests and from our listeners is that people were deeply inspired. I also learned, and we heard stories on DMs and emails, that people were taking action based on their inspiration. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to engage more with our audience. I wanted to meet our listeners and really wanted to think about how this project can make the biggest impact possible. So that was the origin story of the business I have now created for you We're launching a digital course, which is six live modules, or think of them as events, rooted in positive psychology. What I love is telling stories, stories to connect with people and telling stories that motivate people. And what Christy loves is science-backed research. 
So this course is a marriage of those two things, to take these lessons of all the wiser and bring them into your own lives. The course is called All the Happier. It's launching in October, and in the coming weeks, you're going to be hearing more about it. So stay tuned. Now back to today's episode. When you think about the Witness Protection Program, what's the first thing you think about? If you are anything like me, you probably learned about it from the movies. For me, it was the 1990 mafia epic Goodfellas. There was a young and handsome Ray Liotta, if you remember, and his character and their family went into witness protection. It was a cookie cutter, suburban life, lovely brick home, manicured lawn. And I I remember thinking like, this witness protection thing's kind of a good gig. That all changed when I spoke with Jackie Taylor, who paints a very different picture. Jackie, hello, and welcome to All the Wiser. Hello, Kimmy. Thank you so much for having me. I like to have our guests introduce themselves. I find they do a better job than I do. So how would you introduce yourself, Jackie? Well, I'm Jackie Taylor. Um, I did a podcast called Relative Unknown about my crazy life and my father's crazy life. And currently, I'm basically an advocate for children of WITSEC. And can you explain what WITSEC is? WITSEC is, I guess, a shortened version of the Witness Protection Program. What do you remember as your early childhood experience, the backdrop of your life in your childhood? What was that like? Um, You know, I had a really nice childhood, actually, for the first seven years. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and my mother was a nurse. My grandparents really took a hand in raising us. My father was a hell's angel, and we hung out at the clubhouse and with other families, and that was my norm. I had a lot of uncles and a lot of cousins, and, you know, it was, it was really uh, family-oriented, believe it or not. I really don't have any bad memories. You know, there, there's things that I saw, and now in hindsight, of course, you know, a lot of drugs back then, and they called it their medicine. <laughs> and now that I look back on it, that wasn't normal. But to me, it was just, oh, whatever, you know, I'm going to go... Uh, catch a grasshopper or something, you know, while my father's doing cocaine right there. That was just normal to me. Yeah. And I I know in my research that you do describe having a, a really nice childhood, a sweet childhood with memories of fishing and being surrounded by love. Also, as you said, your reality, all you knew was to some extent, this extended family of what was at the time the world's most powerful motorcycle club that came with drugs and violence and all these things that you alluded to. So you really, really grew up kind of in these two different, a light and a shadow, if you will. Absolutely. Yep. And if you can bring to life, I know your parents were very different, but if you could paint a picture for us of as a child, kind of how you experienced your father and your mother, I've heard you describe your dad, you know, remembering the smell of cigarettes and always a knife. And so if you can, how do we get to know them in this moment as listeners of the story? My father um, really had a tumultuous childhood, bounced around from orphanage to orphanage and then went back home to his mother. And uh, she married a gentleman 
and she was able to regain custody of my father. He had so many problems in the early years that he just was never able to fully straighten out. He was very, very gifted and intelligent. Unfortunately, he didn't finish school and he never really received a formal education. He just kind of jumped into the biker world. First, he actually jumped into the pimping world and dealing drugs and stealing cars and motorcycles and whatnot. And after a stint in prison, he decided that he wanted to, I guess, get a motorcycle and start a club. Yeah. And I know your mom, you know, as you said, was a nurse to some extent, for lack of a better description, (laughs) a good girl, right? Perceived. She really was. Yeah. Yeah. And he was involved with drugs and violence and jail. So it's been described as a very unlikely pairing that were your parents. You've alluded to the life of a criminal and the Hells Angels at that time were very notorious and to some extent, as I've learned, operated like a mob. And as a result of that, ATF and the government was investigating, investigating your father and the ATF is circling and your mom decides to sort of create this distance from from the Hells Angels. And I know you've talked about that as a, it's to some extent a an okay move, a move to a sun-filled place. You're still in touch with relatives, but that suddenly changes and it changes overnight. You're in Florida, you're still yourself, you're still your family, you're talking to people back in Cleveland. Tell me about the night when everything changes. Well, we'd been in Florida about nine or 10 months. Uh, I was seven years old at the time. we just started really settling down, getting to know our neighbors, making friends in the neighborhood, just starting a life. My sister, my brother, and I, my mother had gotten a job at a hospital down there. And, you know, like I said, we were just starting to settle. We were starting to enjoy ourselves, feel at home in Florida. We were getting used to the heat finally. And one night in the middle of the night, we were woken up, and this is the only part that is like the movies. They woke us up in the middle of the night, men all in black, and ushered us into black vans. All of us children were afraid. We were crying. Uh, my mother was just trying to be very reassuring, and I just remember she kept saying, it's okay, it's okay, and you know, we had no idea what was going on. We were just all of a sudden being woken up by these men. We didn't know if you know, we were being robbed, if we were in trouble, who these, who they were. You know, they weren't in uniform, so how were we supposed to know that they were law enforcement? We didn't. We were children. We were just, it was utter chaos, confusion, and it was all done in a matter of maybe a minute or two. I just remember going back and grabbing my teddy bear that I had won in kindergarten for selling the most magazines And I named her after my best friend, Mindy. So I had to grab Mindy off of my bed. And we got into these black vans. And I guess we stopped at a hotel. I don't remember that. I remember changing vans at a convenience store. But my next memory is being in what we called, my sister and I, the dream house. But it was actually a government safe house for government witnesses that were being placed in witness protection. So that was very traumatic for the three of us children. We were seven, five, and two at the time. And it's important for the listeners to know that that this came as a result of your father. It was your mom and your brother and sister, but this came with your father coming to Florida. And then that 
night unfolded, as you just described, where you're ripped from your home and really given no opportunity to take anything to say goodbye, any of your belongings, your clothes, anything really. So the government safe house, what happens there and what do you remember about that? I just remember a very big house. There was different wings of this house where there were actually different families. There was a big swimming pool with rocks all around it. My sister and I would go out and play on the rocks. We'd get to swim. There were big sand piles in the backyard. My sister and I walked around a corner playing in sand piles, and there was an armed guard <laughs> standing by the fence. So that was, um, it scared us. We, we didn't know if he was part of this place or who he was. So, you know, naturally we ran in the house and said, oh, there's a guy with a big gun out there. And they said, it's okay. He's just protecting you. We did school during the day. One of our projects was we each had, well, my sister and I, my brother, my little brother wasn't writing yet. Of course, he was only two. But my sister and I had to practice writing our new names over and over. So I, I went from Jacqueline Crouch to now Jacqueline Taylor. So I had to write Jacqueline Taylor, Jacqueline Taylor, Jacqueline Taylor over and over and over until I filled up this entire notebook. I remember that. And uh, we were kind of coached into a lie of a life. So you have to imagine being a child, you're always told to not lie, cheat, steal. You know, you have your core things that your parents teach you. And now at seven years old, I'm in a strange place. And these government officials, I, I know that they're marshals, that's what we call them. They're telling us to lie. We have to lie to everybody. And if we don't get our story straight, it could be very dangerous and we could get killed. That's a lot for a seven-year-old and a five-year-old to take in. And what is the why? All of this, obviously, you're taken in the middle of the night. You're living in a government safe house. You're told you need to change your name. Do they explain what's happening? They didn't tell us why. I mean, we were too young to comprehend, but what had happened was my father had turned state's evidence on the Hells Angels. He basically rolled on them. He was not in trouble at the time, but our house was being watched. And that's why my mother picked up and left on that private property where my grandparents lived and bought my mother a house. There were agents sitting outside of the house. So my mother took us down to Florida while well, they eventually caught up with my father. And they, you know, I guess offered him a new life. But part of the deal was he had to get my mother involved and the children. So my mother just left this, and I didn't realize what a monster he was to her back then because I didn't see that. But she was escaping him as well, not just the lifestyle, but he was a monster of a husband. He was very, very abusive. He put her in intensive care when she was, I believe, eight months pregnant with my brother. So, you know, she was kind of forced to go back to Butch, and she didn't want to. The marshals were telling her, if you don't, you're probably going to get killed and your children probably will be killed too. So, you know, what, what do you do as a mother? You listen to these federal agents and you believe them when they tell you that they're going to protect you for the rest of your life and that you'll be safe with them. Why did he flip? There's a lot of different theories. Um, some say he owed the club money. I think that it was because of the Sigley bombing. Basically, one of the members went out and bombed a house thinking that he was targeting somebody else. 
And he bombed the wrong house and accidentally killed the baby and the baby's mom and the neighbor. So they really had a hard time processing that. And I think that it just ate my father up for years and years and years. And he was done with it after a while. That's what I'd like to think. So you talk about your name. Your new name is Taylor. Mm -hmm. And your father is no longer Butch. He is Chuck. Chuck Taylor. Tell me about the first time you met Chuck Taylor, your father. Well, it was, I guess, in the hotel. I remember it being in the safe house, but I had walked into the room and he was sitting there at a table wearing a white shirt and he had short hair. He was clean and clean shaven and his face just looked different. I later learned that he had some minor plastic surgery. And I didn't recognize him. I had no idea who he was. I thought it was another one of of these men. And he said, hi, sweetie. Hi, sweetheart. He always called me sweetheart. It's me. And I realized it was my dad. It was just bizarre. Um, I knew it was my father, but it was a completely different person. Eventually, you will leave the government safe house and move. And the process of where you end up moving, which is out of your control or your parents' control, is fascinating to me. Can you explain how they go about finding the location? They asked my mother and father where they would like to go, the three states that they would like to move. And I'm sure my father said Texas, Louisiana, probably California. My mother said California, Hawaii, and Florida, I think. So they picked the coldest, most uh, the most far away state possible. And we were in Billings, Montana. They do that because the people surrounding the person that they're trying to protect will know where they've always, you know, oh, well, she always wanted to go to California. So we, you know, we should look for her there. So that's, you know, kind of the, the brain behind that. Put them in a place that they would never want to go. And that you would be drawn to, as you said, a place you have a connection to or a place, you know, you have memories with and potentially people within the state that you know. So it's fascinating that they tee it up in that way to rule out anywhere you would want to go or that would feel comforting or like home. Right. So Billings, Montana, we know nobody. We knew nobody here. There is no organized crime there. So it's kind of a little metropolis in the middle of nowhere kind of, uh, we're surrounded by mountains. If you could see this place, you'd understand it's just barren. So you're now the Taylor family. And I think at this point, it's a good time for you to talk about how the media in Hollywood has portrayed witness protection. This idea of, and there's so many references, right? Mm -hmm. Of you're put into this beautiful suburban life with new identities. And how did the realities and the Hollywood portrayal measure up? It's completely glamorized in Hollywood. Uh, You get a new life, you get a, you know, um, an envelope full of cash, passport, driver's license, new house, new car, you don't have to work. You get everything, you know, at your beck and call. The marshals are taking care of you and checking on you. That is not how it is. We were put in, I'm no princess, first of all. I am perfectly good with staying in a Motel 6, you know, as long as it's clean. I'm 
perfectly fine with Best Western Motel 6. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very frugal, so I do stay in those places. But the place that they put us was disgusting. It was a roach motel. I mean, for lack of a better term, it was awful. There were bugs. There were bugs. We were right next to the train tracks, which is no big deal, but it, it was just, it was horrible. It was right in the middle of downtown. It was late January, early February, and it was bitter cold. So imagine being taken out of Florida, this nice, you know, beautiful, sunny place. We had a pool that we played in, and now all of a sudden we're put in this roach motel where we have no idea. We don't know where we are as children. There's no place to play. It's freezing. We have to make new friends. Uh, My mom is crying constantly. We have no car. We have no home. She has no job. We're not going to school. We're just in this motel. She has to walk everywhere to find a job. They had a very, very limited fund that we were supposed to live off of. Uh, I believe it was about $1,200, $1,276, something like that. But we had a lot of things that we had to do with that money. Food, um, clothes, we needed warmer clothing. So, you know, I mean, that was, that was huge. And I know that it was really, really stressful on my mom, but we eventually did find a cute little condo. She got a job. She did have problems with getting a job. All of her information didn't transfer properly to her new social security number. So I know the marshals had to pull some strings with that, actually. But that's really all they did. And I don't remember really ever seeing them again. We were just left here. And we weren't allowed to talk to my grandparents. We were supposed to. We were never supposed to talk to anybody again that we knew. My father was testifying during this time. He did move with us to Billings. But he was going and testifying against the Hells Angels for about the next probably year, I would say. And then he actually went to trial himself and was convicted of voluntary manslaughter and sentenced to 10 to 40, I believe. And he went away to prison. So now my mom's left all by herself. She cannot tell anybody. She has nobody to vent to. She's trying to raise these three children by herself. No help from her. And her parents, really, my grandparents, really helped out as far as raising us um, financially, everything back in Ohio. And now my mom had to figure out how to do that on her own. She ended up breaking the code and calling her parents because she needed help. She needed her parents. We needed our grandparents back. So we started actually going and staying with our grandparents in Ohio for the summers. And the Marshalls never knew about that. So we were secretly doing that, but my mom absolutely had to. She, she needed a break, and I don't blame her for that. I'm really thankful for all that time that I got to spend with my grandparents again because they were a very, very huge part of our lives. And when you're in Billings, you're now the Taylor family. You obviously have these sort of, as you said, secret getaways hunkering down in your grandparents' house. But in Billings, which is where your life is, you know, any family or kid moving to a new town, you have a story. People say, where are you from? Or what do your parents do? What are you told to say? Or what what is that experience of your story being erased? If I remember right, I believe we were just told to say we were, we just came from Florida. That's why we were tan. Um, and that was it. We never lived in Ohio. 
Uh, we are also told that we needed to watch out for motorcycles. And we knew from listening, eavesdropping his kids, they never really said why, but they did tell us that the Hells Angels were no longer our friends. We were told that. And we needed to watch out for them. If we saw them, we were supposed to run in and tell my mother. And that basically they were out to get us. And they were now, so all of my uncles, all of my cousins, all of my aunties now didn't like us. And they wanted to harm our family. So anytime a motorcycle went by, anytime I heard one in the distance, this once comforting, soothing sound of my uncles or possibly my father was now a sound of terror. And I literally wet myself as a child when I heard a motorcycle. I never saw a Hells Angels patch. I always, I knew what to look for, but um, that was scary, you know? You shouldn't have to hide from people that are trying to kill you when you're a kid or told that, for cripe's sake. You know, that's, and that leads to my, there was no counseling. So that's a big area of concern for me. I went through a lot as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, um, still to this day. I have a lot of issues, a lot of mental health issues, and it stems directly from this. I didn't receive adequate mental health care when I was a child. I should have been talking to somebody you have talked about your coping mechanisms during this time and in high school. There's clearly is a, a void and a pain and emptiness and all of these things that come with all of the losses, the loss of your father, the loss of your identity, the loss of your family and friends. How do you cope both in the ways that were healthy and helpful and the ways that were maladaptive and damaging to you? So when we initially first moved here and we were told to, you know, just be real careful about what we said. We were from Florida. It was really hard to make friends. We just, you know, moved to Florida for the nine or 10 months and then moved again, started another school again. And now we had all this trauma that we're dealing with and we can't tell anybody, but we're supposed to try to make friends. Um, that was really hard for me. I didn't make friends very well. In fact, I was really bullied. And I think it was because I was so shy and nervous and scared of everything. Um, I was really picked on. And I, I dealt with that until it really started to fester. And that started to kind of fester and boil over right about when I hit puberty, which makes a lot of sense. I just kind of realized that now. But I was going through a lot of a lot of things and and I snapped and I started bullying all the bullies. And I started kind of experimenting with alcohol and drugs. I got caught stealing a couple of times. I got caught with marijuana, got caught drinking in school in eighth grade, which was kind of unheard of back then. Uh, I went to drug and alcohol treatment when I was 14 years old. And then I came home. I tried to make it work and it just did not work. My mother eventually put me in the system. And then I was in foster care and group homes. And that's when I finally started getting the counseling that I needed, but, the, <laughs> but my counselors didn't believe me. My psychiatrist didn't believe me. My psychologist didn't believe me. The kids in the group therapy didn't believe me. They all thought I was full of crap. I was put on a slew of different medications because they thought I was crazy, which of course I am a little crazy. I'll admit it, but I was suffering from depression, anxiety, um, PTSD, 
I wasn't having these delusions of grandeur, which is what they thought was going on with me, and that I was a pathological liar. I was being treated for things like that. So I was being treated for things that weren't relevant to my situation because of my situation, if that makes sense. That breaks my heart for you on so many levels that you were, in fact, sharing yourself and your hard truth and to not be heard or acknowledged or the opposite, to be told you're crazy, to be told you're mentally ill and your story is not real, just the layers of that. So I'm sorry, you know, for all of it, but yeah. Because I I wanted to get better, you know, I really did. I was trying to utilize, I was actually in a psychiatric hospital for 60 days when I was 15 and I actually liked it there. It It was comforting. There was a blue light in my bedroom and these people that work there, I remember all of their names and that was in 1990. I remember every single counselor that worked there. I remember the PE guy, his name was RJ. I remember all of these people because they actually cared about me. They listened to me, but they still didn't quite know if I was telling the truth. They didn't necessarily believe me, but I was trying to utilize that and get well. Yeah, and fascinating that you experienced more healing support and love in group homes and um, mental facilities than you did in your own home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I don't hold that against my mother, I did for a long time, but she she did what she, she did the best she could for her situation. Yes, true of all parents, true of all parents, right? right? right. Because her right. pain was as real as yours. Right. When do you learn about your dad's truth? When do you learn about your dad's story? So when my father left to go to prison, he told us children that he was going on a boat to work so we wouldn't be able to call him. Um, we could write him letters but he would try to call us like once every month or two that we, um, you know, he's going to be out to sea. So, you know, he had to wait till they came back to land and then he would call us. And that's what we thought. So my father, who had never worked a day in his life, all of a sudden is going to, you know, be this hardworking man that's going to go work on a boat and take care of his family. I think it, it, it upset my mom because she was the one who was working her butt off to support the family by herself. I had no idea, but she had divorced him right after he left. Right after he went to prison, she divorced him. And uh, anyways, a couple of years down the road, she just got tired of hearing it. So we were brought into the counselor's office at school, Tom Farrow's, all of us children. And my mother just said, point blank, your father's not on a boat. He's a murderer and he's in prison. (laughs) and you're probably never going to see him again. And that's how she told us. I mean, it was just horrific. My whole world was just absolutely shattered, and I'll never forget the look on my counselor's face. His mouth just dropped open, and I thought he was going to start crying. That kind of destroyed me, and that really screwed me up. And it really hurt my sister. We were crying, and it was pretty awful to find out that your father's a freaking murderer when you had no clue. You thought he was working out on a boat, supporting his family. So I definitely don't agree with the way that she did it. I can I understand her frustration. Now as a parent with a 17-year-old daughter that drives me freaking nuts, now I can kind of see why she did certain things. Um, I have a lot of her in me. I'm noticing as I get older. Yes, that happens to all of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are the types of 
crimes that your dad committed that you now know about in hindsight? Oh, multiple rapes. Um, he was busted for prostitution, pimping, um, drug dealing, robbery, every kind of assault imaginable, cruelty to animals. Gosh, everything except for uh, child molestation, I guess. That's really the only thing that he wasn't guilty of. But every horrible crime you could think of, he did. He was awful. By all definition, he was a serial killer. He killed a lot of people during the course of his life, some that I'll probably never know about. We've talked about childhood and your teenage years, but what are the nuts and bolts when you're in the program? How, what did that look like in your moving into adulthood? It's different in a lot of ways. I have a hard time with my identification. So I have no birth certificate. I have no passport. I actually did, uh, when I went public with this story in 2009, it was because out of frustration that I didn't have a birth certificate and my children's Medicaid got canceled. So I called the marshals. They didn't listen. They didn't do anything. That's uh, common with just about every child in WITSEC. Um, my thing is, is that we didn't sign anything and the marshals are still refusing to help. I'm now considered a breached member of WITSEC. So they're refusing to help me. Um, if you're put into witness protection and your parent dies, I'm actually talking to another child. Well, he's 25. He's not a child anymore, but his father died. And the marshal said, okay, well, that's it. You know, we're done with your family. And these kids can't get any form of identification. So, you know, it's, it's really been a struggle just as far as that. I can't get married um, in my county. I can't get a marriage license. I can't leave the country. I can't go to college. Um, applying for a home loan. I have a Wisconsin social security number, yet I was born in Cleveland. So that red flags me. You know, um, it's, it's been hard, you know, living a normal life. I know you had talked about relationships and love. Can you touch on that as part of the question about how it shaped adulthood? You know, I've always kind of had a, I've always struggled with relationships. I was married once and I just kind of abandoned him. We had some problems and I left. I leave when things get tough. I never really figured out how to make it work. And still 47 years old, I have no clue. I'm a single mom. You know, it's, um, I have a lot of friends. I love my community, but um, I anger easy. And I have to watch that constantly. It's been a rough life. I try to do good. I'm really trying to do better with myself and people around me and try to, especially after all this COVID and everything that's been happening in the world. Um, I just want to love people. I just want to show more love instead of hate. And that's really weird for Jackie Taylor to say that if you really knew me. But, you know, I'm really trying to change as a human being now. Finally, I'm starting to grow up. It took a long time, though. Um, and like I said, that didn't need to happen. I should have had a lot of counseling back then. So shame on you, Marshalls, for not supplying that. The Witness Protection Program is very flawed fundamentally from, you know, the ground up. It really just needs to be restructured. There's nothing has changed. I talk to people all the time that, you know, were just recently put in WITSEC and nothing's changed. And that's sad because I've been griping about this in the media for a long time, 12 years to be exact, and they're still not listening and they're still not making changes for us. And 
When you say if people really knew me, do you mean the anger and the hurt? Yeah, I was a fighter in high school. So I started bullying the bullies. And then it was, um, you know, did that girl look at me wrong? And, you know, I went after her or, you know, people would seek me out. Um, So-and-so was, you know, talking about me and uh, blah, blah, you know, and, and I was sought out to go beat people up. And I enjoyed that. I liked that feeling like a, like a badass. Um, it gave me power. It made me feel like somebody, it made me feel wanted, I guess. But you're that person that nobody really genuinely likes because you're so mean. But that was, I guess, a defense mechanism, you know, to keep people from getting too close because of all the trauma I want. You know, if, if they got too close, was I going to scare them away? Um, you know, there's just so many different X factors of my personality because of everything that I went through. So you're a mom of three kids. Mm-hmm. Is there a generational narrative to be the grandkids of... Absolutely. So I call it the third generation wit sex syndrome. My children have, you know, this isn't a normal life. They haven't lived a normal life, unfortunately. I haven't been a normal mom. I have no idea how to be a normal mom. Um, my mom had a lot of issues. So unfortunately, I really did not learn how to parent properly from anybody. You know, she uh, put me in the system because she didn't know what to do. So, you know, I'm still actively seeking out counseling and trying to better myself every day and trying to not be that dysfunctional family that I grew up in. I'm trying to break that, I hate to say this, term, but I'm trying to break that cycle of, you know, all the trauma. And I just want my kids to have a nice childhood and look back with fond memories because I don't so much. I have fond memories of the Hell's Angels, but why don't I have fond memories of, you know, my mom? That's sad. So, you know, my my children, unfortunately, haven't lived a normal life and they have suffered because of my struggles in WITSEC. After... 24 years, you were reunited with your dad. Walk me through the why of of that reunion and what that experience was for you. I had found my aunt that was my father's sister. She was down in Louisiana. Uh, Let's rewind a little bit. He was released from prison when I was a senior in high school. 1992, he sent us all a card with $5 in it saying that he loved us. We hadn't heard from him for years, but he sent us all a card with $5 saying that he loved us and he thought of us every day with $5. That just fueled my anger. I, I, th- I think I bought marijuana with that $5. Um, but I had had a lot of very, very dark thoughts over the years for, you know, 10, 12 years. I, uh, I wanted to hurt my dad. I wanted to find him and I wanted to hurt him. And when I went down to Louisiana, I thought maybe I would do that. My aunt told me that she knew that where he lived, that he lived just right across the border in Texas. And I wanted to go over there and do some bad stuff. And she went with me and he opened the door and he was this little frail old man that was completely crippled, no teeth. And he looked so freaking happy to see me. Come to find out, I was one of about 30 children. I was the only one that talked to him. Anyways, when I saw him, all of that hate, all of that anger, everything just kind of melted away. 
And I realized who he was. He was trying to actually do good out in the middle of Texas. He was trying to live a good life. And I saw that in his face. Uh, He was breeding dogs, mowing lawns, growing vegetables, running an RV park. He had to do all of the things that that he could do off the grid without a paycheck. He was, you know, on a cash basis because he's in WITSEC, doesn't have proper identification. So that's the kind of life he was leading, but he was doing good. And we actually talked and sat down and barbecued that day and I didn't hurt him. I kind of fell in love with my daddy again. We started, when I came back to Montana, we started communicating a lot. And it was exciting. It was almost, and I hate to compare it like this, but it was almost um, when you first start dating somebody and you're, ooh, did they message me? That's how it was. You know, I was super excited to see my, see if my dad had emailed me or, you know, what did he send me a picture? What did he say today? And, you know, it was, it was, it was neat. We started developing that relationship again and it was nice. So as an adult, I had never had a relationship with him. My mother never remarried. So I didn't have a, any sort of dad ever, any father figure in my life, except for the neighborhood dads that I'd just kind of adopt as my, you know, neighborhood dad. Um, and that's kind of what we had to do in our family, but it was nice. I got to know my dad again. Finally, we had a good relationship going. And at this point, he's on his third identity, which is post-prison, which is Paul Dome. Correct. At least his third identity that I know of, yeah. And years later, you're back in Florida, which I know still today is a, is a place that you hold dear. When we first spoke, you were vacationing there with your, mm-hmm. with your son. And you get a call in Florida. Who calls you and what did they say? I got a call late and it was my aunt and I didn't, I saw on the caller ID and I didn't answer it, but I thought, well, what the heck is she calling me so late for? She's old. She goes to bed early. So they left a message and I listened to it and it was my uncle Harry saying that Jackie, you need to call us. Something's happened. So I called him back right away and he said, Jackie, it looks like your dad, your dad's dead. And it looks like he might've killed his wife and his stepson. And I was just, I mean, everything that I did on that vacation, I, I barely remember that vacation because there is freaking trauma all over again. Just this, my world just got flipped upside down. I didn't know what to do. We talked a little bit and then I came home and I had to figure what I'm going to do with my kids because I know that I have to go down to Texas and take care of some business. Um, I was really, really, really angry with him for doing that. Really angry. So I went down to Texas to take care of the other two. And what a just devastating, horrendous, you know, phone call and final act for your relationship with your dad. I'm deeply saddened for you for that chapter, yet sort of yet again, sadly. And eventually you get a phone call that he has left you a trunk. Walk me through the first time you saw the trunk, you opened it, if you can explain that next chapter of your story. So when I went down to Texas, I, like I said, I went down there to take care of my stepmother and my stepbrother. The guy at the funeral home said, well, what should we do with your father? And I said, put him in a box and throw him in the Red River. I don't care. He killed these people. I'm not here for him. I'm here for them. But 
I went, I had to go talk to the sheriff. So I went and talked to David McKnight and he told me that my dad had left me some stuff. This was a little bit premeditated. He had moved this big black trunk. So when I went to the sheriff's office, McKnight opened it up and said, you know, I've been looking through this and do you know who your father was? I said, yeah, I know exactly who my father was. He said, no, but do you really, do you have any clue who he really, really was? But anyways, I take the trunk to my aunt's house and after they went to bed, I started going through it and pulling some stuff out and I found a Hells Angels patches in there and there were some pictures, but there was a lot of correspondence between him and the marshals and the ATF and the courts um, and social security and him begging for help in the later stages of life. There was actually a letter from the marshals stating that they weren't sure what to do. And at that point, I kind of realized that, you know, he was getting denied from everybody and then the marshals are telling him, you know, that's his last resort is you guys got to help me. You know, I'm trying to take care of my wife. I'm trying to take care of my stepson. My stepson's dying of brain cancer. Uh, My wife is terminally ill as well. And I am in bad shape. I need help here. My hospice nurses aren't doing their job. You know, I'm in pain. I can't do this by myself. I need help. These men um, are, and women, these criminals are put out. They're just put out. They're not checked on. They're not monitored. Why wasn't my father being watched? I mean, you know, screw his health for a second and all of that. But why wasn't he being watched being he's Clarence Crouch? And he's definitely no angel. They should have been watching him. I don't know. It's just, it doesn't make any sense to me. Uh But I I realized that he tried so hard. The marshals failed him. The government failed him. They made him promises. He wasn't looking for money. He was just looking for help for his health so that he could take care of his wife and stepson. And I think that he was just frustrated with the whole situation. They were, you know, in bad shape. He was in bad shape. Nobody gave a rat's ass. So what else was there left to do for him? And being a person that struggled with you know, suicidal thoughts my entire life. I get where his head was. I really do. I don't think that it was out of malice. I don't think there was any anger involved. I think he was frustrated and he did, he, he'd had it. He'd had it with this life. That makes a lot of sense to me, right? And a very empathetic lens and point of view that you were able to process and and thinking about it that way with some compassion and empathy. But that made me think of, you know, everybody else. Like, what are these other people going through? This shouldn't happen. It it could, I believe it could have been prevented if he had been listened to, um, if he would have gotten the help that he needed. If he would have been watched, for cripe's sake, you can't leave Clarence Crouch out in the middle of Texas and expect him to lead a productive life and a clean life. I feel bad for what he had to go through in his final stages of life. You know, a lot of people would hear that and say, well, you know, he flipped on the club, he did this, he was a rapist, he was a murderer. But I still have that soft spot for my father and the way that he legitimately from 1994, because I think the year that he got married, to 2006, lived a good life. He was doing good. So, you know, it just lit a fire up under me all over again. And I, you know, am bound and determined 
to make changes within WITSEC. They're still not responding, so I'm just getting louder. I'm using more public uh, forums, um, my podcast, newspapers, magazines, um, TV, radio, any way that I can spread the word, but I just, I don't want this to happen again. It's not right. We are funding the marshals. We have no idea how much of our tax money is actually going into this witness security program. And there has been no congressional oversight since 1984. Why? I want to talk about healing and the ways in which you've been able to heal from everything that you have been through. And part of your relationship with your dad, you know, I was leaving the trunk and I want to talk about your experience of reading. He did, as you talked about earlier, leave a manuscript, which was titled Hate and Discontent. But there was a lot of mystery about your father growing up. And I just am interested in that experience of experiencing his life through the manuscript and the other things that were in the trunk. So can you share with us what was in there and um, your experience of going into your father's world through those items, those belongings, those words? You know, I haven't, honestly, hate and discontent is so huge. Uh, He wrote it in prison with the smallest font possible, um, with a prison typewriter. And it's, I believe, like 640-something pages long. Uh, It's huge, but I think I've read about 15 pages. That's all I could muster. It's fascinating, but it's hard for me to detach myself and to read about all these horrible things that he did to women and to animals and to people. And it's very hard for me to read that about my father, if that makes any sense. But I did kind of delve into his world through photographs and um, other writings that he did and stories and calling people and talking to people. And it's crazy how well I've gotten to know my father through his death. And that's so sad. But I really have, and I feel closer to my father now than I ever have. Well, you know, your podcast, Relative Unknown, is very successful. And it is you narrating your life story and your father's life story. And it's brought to life with people who knew your father, law enforcement, and um, lots of people that are interviewed. So I wonder, you know, I certainly believe, and there's many tenets of the podcast and why we do it, that the sharing of ourselves and our stories versus sort of hiding it all away can be cathartic. We can learn about ourselves and our experience, but there's power in the sharing. And so in creating that and narrating the story of your father, and this is a nice segue to what works for you in healing everything you've been through. I'm curious if you've found healing and speaking so openly and candidly and the other ways in which is helpful to you as you recover from what has been a lot of clearly very traumatic, difficult, and painful chapters? You know, that's a very interesting question. And surprisingly enough, it has not been cathartic to me. Talking about all this isn't. Um, It's still, it's reliving things, but I know I need to talk about it but I talk about it a lot every day because I have a mission. So where I get healing and comfort from is knowing that 
by sticking to this mission. This is not what I wanted to do with my life, but I have to because I am the voice of everybody else that is struggling in WITSEC right now. So that is huge and important to me, but I have this mission and I'm, like I said, I'm just getting louder until I am heard because I want this to eventually be over. So knowing that I'm doing this for the better of other people, that's where I get my healing, that's where I get my power, that's where I get my strength to go on. I've lived a very tumultuous life. I've lived a very traumatic life, um, and I can't believe that I've made it this far. Like I said, I struggle with my, my mental health. I struggle with thoughts of suicide almost daily, and that's okay. I can't help what I think, but I do know that there's way out, ways out of that. But there's always, there's always a bird outside singing. There's, you know, there's always something beautiful outside. You just have to look up. You have to find that. I um, find strength and healing and happiness through helping other people. Everybody's a person. Everybody's got their struggles. The life that I've lived has definitely made me ultra-sensitive to mankind, I guess. Have you forgiven your father? Oh, yes. Yep. The second that I read one of the papers from the marshals in my auntie's living room right after I got there, I forgave him. It hit me what happened. I realized what happened in Texas. Were there other ways? Yeah, absolutely. I make no excuses for my father. I do not condone his actions at all, but... I absolutely forgive him. I I see where his head was. And I'm very sad that he chose that path. So yeah, I I do forgive him. It was a horrible thing that he did, but I do forgive him. And what is your relationship with your mom today? I know she has stayed away from the sharing of her story on the podcast. Where do you lie with her and that relationship today? Me and my mother have a very strange relationship. I am all about mental health awareness, bettering myself, taking care of my mental health constantly, 24-7, whereas she is not about that. She um, was quick to put me in every institution she could, yet she never sought out treatment for herself. When we moved to Montana, she just dove right back into the church, and she didn't want to talk about anything. I needed answers. I want to know my past. I mean, I forgive her for that, but... She's very, she doesn't want to talk about it, doesn't want to talk about anything. So I did this podcast because I'm trying to help these people. I'm trying to change WITSEC. Just like she gives communion at the hospital on Sundays, she's helping people, right? I'm trying to do that too. Unfortunately, she doesn't see it that way. I don't want to get famous. I just want to live in Billings, Montana anonymously and live, you know, lead my own life here. I don't want to do that. I just want to make some changes so that we can, you know, take care of these people that have nobody else to look out for them. I am literally the only person that is trying to help these people. You know, and there's thousands. There's thousands of these people. And she doesn't, my mother sees it as um, airing dirty laundry. You have said, you know, woven throughout our conversation that you have a why in the sharing. You know, the podcast and so much of the story is a story of, you know, crime and a motorcycle gang. and But that is not your why, a story of crime, but to change the system that you were brought up in 
And as you said, there's been no reform or thought put into that system since 1996. I'm curious about how could it have worked? If you look back and say, had the system, you know, had these tenets or had I had these things, it would have made sense for me and it would have supported me in the way that I needed and my family needed to be supported. So how could the program be changed in a way that it worked to, in fact, protect people, not just from the harm of people they may have testified again, but protect their families and themselves emotionally? Well, I'm primarily an advocate for children of witness protection, not so much the adults, unfortunately, but children that did not sign anything like myself. So my solution would be to form a special committee consisting of various psychiatric, psychological, and social experts, preferably all with PhDs, and along with experts in law enforcement. Each child and adult, all new, old, and future, current, whatever, all members, even breached members of security, I think they all need to have a proper intake and evaluation done. And people should be delegated for each individual. And especially children, once they turn 18, they should be given their own worker and, um, you know, told their options. Do you want to go back to your old identity or do you want to keep this identity? You do want to go back to your old identity? Okay, I can help you with that. Um, we definitely all need health care, mental health coverage, and proper identification. Those are the three things I advocate for. Mental health care, health care, identification. Three very, very simple things that need to be done. I'm just asking for our basic civil rights, not just for us, but for the rest of the United States of America, because there's people like Butch Crouch living out there amongst you, and he's not being monitored. People need to know that. And, you know, that, that leads to a whole nother aspect. You know, us children were put with this man. We were put with him. I would have rather have been put in foster care at that age than put with my mother and father. So these criminals are given their kids just because they flip on somebody. You know, that, that's just asinine to me. Um, there's just a lot of reform, but eventually I want to get up to Capitol Hill and testify in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings, just like my father did, and, you know, call for some reform. So there has to be some form of government oversight, with the U.S. Marshals, um, you know, the ATF, the FBI, they were all involved, but the U.S. Marshals head this, the Witness Protection Program. There has to be government oversight for the sake of the people on WITSEC, for the children, and like I said, general society too. Do you know approximately how many people are in the program today? You know, um, everywhere I look, there's a different number. One of the last numbers I saw was approximately 12,500. You know, every place that you look is going to say different. Like I said, it's all secrets. So last question, your intent and why is for, for reform, clearly, for the kids in, in WITSEC. Beyond that, to people who are listening to you as you share your story in the media, on your podcast, on this podcast, what do you hope they take away from your story? Or what do you hope they learn for people who are struggling in their own way, as you said, big trauma, little trauma. What do you hope they take away? There's always hope. There's always somebody that will listen. You know, I'll listen. 
I answer every single message I get. I will never be that person that doesn't have time to answer a message, you know, on Instagram. But, you know, there's always somebody that wants to help and you have to sometimes seek those people out. Life is beautiful. You just need to find your beauty, find what makes you happy. You got to find out what that is. Like I said in the podcast, every time somebody's light goes out in this world, it gets a little dimmer. Don't let your light go out. And that's, that's really what I want people to take away from this. So, you know, seek out help. Talk to people. Mental health doesn't have to be such a stigma anymore. Take care of your brain. If you're having bad thoughts, if people are telling you, if you got to listen to the people around you too. If they're telling you, you know, why are you so angry all the time? Why, are, you know, you're isolated. Listen to those people. Um, when I start a new medication, uh, I'll be on medication the rest of my life. I am not ashamed of that, nor will I ever. I suffer from being bipolar um, and probably a little borderline personality disorder. And I'm not ashamed of that. It's okay. You know, I have no control over that. It just happened. It's my brain. My brain is an organ, you know, and people that are listening, don't be ashamed. Life is beautiful. I can't say it enough. Um, go take a vacation. Go do something good. But just hang in there. If you're going through some struggles, just hang in there. And sometimes it's as simple as taking a nap. When I have really bad days and if I start feeling really angry and, you know, suicidal, sometimes I have to just take a nap and I feel so much better when I wake up. That's a really, really easy, stupid tool that works. Go take a freaking nap. (laughs) All wise advice, beautiful words. Thank you. Thank you for your courage and sharing your story, your vulnerability, being so clear on the why and the intention of sharing it. I'm really grateful to have met you. Thank you. So we end with a little something called lightning round. We've changed the name. It's lightning (laughs) round and it is just fun and light. And so are you game? You ready? I, of course, I'm game for anything. Okay. (laughs) Favorite food? Pizza, definitely. Yep. I'm, I'm there with you. What is the one thing you carry with you at all times? Probably my lip gloss. If you had a time machine, where and when would you go? Oh, I would definitely go back to probably about 1980 and uh, spend some time with my grandfather. He was the love of my life. <laughs> Morning, noon, or night? Night. Favorite song? Hazy Shade of Winter by the Bengals. If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Seal Beach, California. Thank you, Jackie, and (laughs) um, for all of it. And where can we find you? you. Where can we listen to the podcast? If people want to reach out on social, where can... Well, we'll include links to everything in the show notes, but I'd love for you to, to share with your own voice as well. Well, you can find me on Twitter, I believe. I'm Hell's Little Angel, but Angel is A-N-G-L. On Instagram, I think I'm JTHood74. Best way to get a hold of me is on Instagram. Uh, send me a message. I will always message you back. You can send me a, twi- a message on Twitter. And I even actually included my email, and I have no problem giving out my personal email. Great. And we'll link to everything in the notes. Okay. And don't forget to listen to Relative Unknown. I literally was on the edge of my seat, and I'm not just saying this because it's my podcast. I was on the edge of my seat with episode one, and I can't believe that it was done so well. They just told me what to do, but it is amazing. All 10 episodes are just 
whoa, I like learned so much about myself and about Cleveland. And it, it, it's great. Listen to Relative Unknown. It's wonderful. It could not be better <laughs> or more well-produced. And, and you're the narrator and you did a stand-up A-plus job. So Thank you. Yeah. So we will, I'm sure lots of people will discover you, more about you and the podcast itself. And I want to give a shout out to all the wiser friend, Zach Robidas, who- Oh, uh, hi, Zach. Who made the introduction. Um, he had you yes. on, on, on his podcast and introduced us. So thank you, Zach. All right, Jackie, thank you again and have a great day and we'll be in touch soon. Okay, thank you so much, Kimmy. I so appreciate you inviting me to be on your show. This was amazing. As you know, All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. And what that means is for every episode we share, we donate $2,000 to a charity around the world. In season one, we aired 50 stories and donated $100,000 to charity. And we decided we were having way too much fun to stop there. Today's charity is Healing Waters. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Pod Pit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Thank you for listening, and I can't wait to bring you some incredible stories we're working on in this new season of All the Wiser. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.